I'm Linda van Tilburg for Biz News and with me is Mark Birchold, founding director of Omba Advisory and Investment, an investment firm based in London. Um, hi, Mark. How are you? Hi, Linda. Fine news. Thanks for having me. Well, we've been watching the markets and what interest rates are doing. And I see there was a stark warning from JP Morgan Chase CEO, Jamie Dimon, that the Federal Reserve might not be finished with its aggressive regime of interest hikes and the fight against inflation. So are we not peaking in global interest rates? Well, Linda, it's a, it's a, it's a never-ending question, or feels like it over the last sort of two years, is where will the Fed land up on interest rates? Um, and, you know, without you know, being too prescriptive, you know, as economic data changes and as the world changes, one has to change their view. It does, in our view, seem like we're getting close to peak rates. Perhaps we, we, the Federal Reserve need to move another 25 or 50 bips, which I think would be a surprise to markets. That's not been fully priced in at the moment. Um, we've come a long way from you know, 0 to 25 range in interest rates. And the pass-through of that into the economy is, is slowly starting to take place in, in some areas of the market in terms of companies that are over-levered or households which are over-levered, um, you know, sentiment indicators and activity indicators. But the, the reality is in the, in the U.S., the labor market is still very strong. And we saw you know, job openings surprise to the upside yesterday, which then caused further jitters in bond markets as they think the Fed are likely to stay higher for longer. Whether they actually hike Fed funds rates more is, I don't think they need to, but they could perhaps hold interest rates higher for longer as opposed to, you know, earlier this year, cuts were priced in that would be at, you know, 4% or lower by the end of next year. And that's already pushed upwards. So I think that there's, there's a difference between the short end of the curve and, and Fed funds rates remaining high versus when they start cutting. And the point at which we start seeing that drop. So it's, I guess it's a tricky one. Um, we're, we're close to peak rates. Um, predicting the exact level is very difficult. And um, you talked about the US. What about other parts of the world? Yeah, I think, you know, across the globe, you know, let's say broadly speaking, developed economies have been in a, a hiking cycle over the last 18 months because their inflation numbers have exceeded their targets, whether that's, you know, looking at broader Europe and the ECB or the Bank of England in the UK you know, even the Bank of Japan have started to see inflation. But in other major economies like China, for example, they're actually cutting rates. Their, their inflation is very much in check, you know, sort of hovering between 2 and 3% mark. So China, for example, have room to continue cutting rates. We've seen a lot of developed economies begin a rate cutting cycle. So if you were to just simplify it broadly, large Western developed economies are at sort of peak or getting close to peak rates, maybe a few more hikes. TBD, we'll see, but certainly not cutting. Whereas in emerging markets, you know, whether that's Latin America or places like, um, you know, some of the Southeast Asian countries, they've started to, to cut rates. So there's a bit of a bifurcation between the developed and, and emerging world in interest rates. So you know, it's very difficult. Inflation is is higher in some places than others. For example, in the UK, it's it's fortunately the last inflation print was better than expected, i.e., lower than expected which is good news, but it can be stickier in certain economies. So, you know, countries with flexible labor forces, for example, where you can hire and fire more easily like the US, don't have the labor sort of wage inflation pressure that some some places like the UK would feel. So, you know, if workers see higher inflation, they demand higher wages. And we spoke earlier before we started about, you know, strikes relating to the train and you know, Southwest trains that I catch every day is permanently on strike, it feels like. And so 
you know, la- if labor unions are very powerful in an economy and inflation is there, they demand higher wages, and then that in itself can cause what's called the wage inflation spiral. I don't think that's likely because the main drivers of inflation, if we go back to the sort of period of sort of late 2021, early 22, when inflation really started moving up, were pent-up savings from households, you know, in developed economies that had received fiscal grants and, you know, had been saving their money because they were locked down in COVID, coming out and saying, well, I've, I've been saving all this money. I've been desperate to get out and spend it. And so we saw boosting consumption, demand for goods and services as households started to spend their savings. We've now seen a lot of the savings rates drop meaningfully as people have spent that money. And so that was one driver. Then coupled with that, you had supply chain issues around the world in the sort of post-COVID period, expensive shipping rates, logistical issues at ports, China still being in zero COVID for an extended period of time, China making lots of components that fed into you know, developed countries' manufacturing processes for, let's say, a new car. So we saw secondhand car sale prices spike because people get their secondhand cars. Um, so we saw your know, secondhand car prices spike new cars not be made because components were coming from China, for example. So the second was really this disruption to the global supply chain. That's now abated to a, to a meaningful degree, if not completely. Um, and then we had you know, the Russia-Ukraine war kickoff, which caused a spike in energy prices. And that confluence of the three things, you know, pent-up savings being spent, which is on the demand side, supply issues due to supply chain bottlenecks, second pillar, and then the third being this spike in energy and, and other commodity prices like some of the food food commodities like wheat, for example, those all drove inflation at the same time. And so the inflation spikes we saw, we don't think will persist. And we've started to see inflation numbers coming in. And so our view would be that inflation continues to come in, you know, whether it's in one year, 18 months or two years when we hit sort of central bank targets, it's very difficult to gauge. But the good news is, it is coming in across the developed markets and we could see as we move into next year potential rate cuts because inflation is coming in. The other side of that coin really is, is you know, having had high rates now, this could trigger a recession in many developed countries. And if a recession is triggered, there's market disruption in, in, in various aspects of the market. Let's say, for example, the banking sector, which in Q1 this year started to see its um, uh, the effects of higher interest rates, sort of a mismatch between the duration on fixed income within within bank assets uh, pools. If that sort of disruption occurs, the good news is that if you take the Fed, or the ECB or the Bank of England, they're at higher base rates now. So there's room for them to cut. Whereas post GFC in this zero rate or negative rate world, there was no more flexibility to drop base rates. So they were, the stimulus was by other mechanisms like quantitative easing. And so I think we're in a we're in a good position in that central banks can act swiftly and in a coordinated manner if there is more extreme disruption. Um, so you know inflation is is very is very tricky to predict, but overall it is coming in, and we think the three pillars, sort of broadly speaking, that drove that inflation are all somewhat behind us. So you mentioned China that they are cutting interest rates. What about China? What do you expect there? China's, you know, a very big topic in, in, in financial markets, for, depending on, you know, where you sit and also geopolitically, of course. Now, as, as I've discussed with, with Alec in prior interviews, we, we long-term like China from a strategic allocation point of view. We feel China's underrepresented in major indices due to its, you know, contribution to global GDP, its contribution to global GDP growth, the size of its population, its increasing urbanization, 
you know the the scope for which for China to become a more developed economy is is still there and it's it's been out of favor because of its rise in terms of western rhetoric and geopolitics you know and the and, and the good news is you know it trades cheaply so a lot of the bad news is priced in but we're reasonably optimistic on China you know if, if you think of you know its underperformance has created a valuation opportunity it's the earnings of big chinese you know say internet and tech companies have been strong revenue growth has been strong but they trade at a you know sort of on a broad index of internet companies in china on a, on a, on a 22 times multiple of earnings whereas the us equivalents china's internet uh, us internet companies trade on a 34 35 times earnings so there's a there's already a valuation discount there and then you think about policy you know a lot of policy announcements made towards you know big platform businesses and tech you know in the 2021 22 period from china caused a sell off in those names they've somewhat now stopped making big policy change and are supportive of these platform businesses which are you know part of their sort of intention as a government to improve the lives of their 1.4 billion people Furthermore, we're seeing improvement on the geopolitical front. We've had, you know, Blinken and Yellen and Raimondo, all you know, senior members of of the U.S. Congress visit China recently. You know, hopefully Xi and Biden will meet at at the um, APEC summit coming up in in San Francisco in November. So, on the geopolitical front, the re- the relationship between the U.S. and China seems to be improving. You know, it's far from a perfect state. Um, but that's because, you know, the West are somewhat threatened by China. China are leading in so many areas, you know, whether that's battery technology and electric vehicles. And, you know, they've got the greatest number of um, processing facilities for a number of the commodities that go into the clean, green en- energy revolution. You know, they've, they've, they, they're leaders in, in battery technology, leaders in, in, in wind t- turbine assembly. They're, and they're selling their product now into the West because there's a demand from the West to become cleaner and greener. So, you know, for varying reasons, we continue to like China, but it's it's a difficult market to own, you know, given the constant negative rhetoric towards it. On the negative side, only 4 or 5% of China is owned by um, foreigners, whereas in the US, comparative sake, that's 35% is owned by foreigners on the stock market. So, you know, it's not widely owned by non-Chinese investors, which in our view is somewhat positive because if that moved from 5% ownership to 10% ownership, that would be good. You know, they've also been opening up their capital markets. I mean, many people don't realize that, you know, whether it's MSCI indices or it's, um, you know, FTSE indices, they've all increased their China inclusion over the last few years as a part of that index, but still underrepresented if you think of it in terms of contribution to global GDP size of their capital market. So, you know, the scope for further inclusion is there, but they have already been increasing. The bond market, similarly, China's bond market, you know, makes up now over 10% of the global aggregate bond index. That's happened in the last few years. Their, their currency markets have been opened up. You've got sort of, it's the Hong Kong Connect system, which connects, you know, outside investors into mainland China and vice versa. So, Overall, capital market activity in China is, is, is increasing and it's becoming more accessible. Yet, we don't read about that in the press. So, you know, we like China. We're cautious on our allocations. We're not going to be at 50% China, but, but overall, we like it. What does this all mean? Should investors change their asset allocations um, now that there was a strong rally in, and in view of what's happening in China? 
Yeah, well, we've had a, I mean, the, the word rally is sort of from Q4 last year until maybe a couple months ago, we had a very strong rally, but that's somewhat abated in, in the last few weeks and months. And I think, you know, part of it's a healthy correction. You know, markets maybe got a little bit ahead of themselves given uncertainty with high rates. And we, the way we've been thinking about it is, is as we go into a potentially slowing environment with, you know, risk of recession, our, our base case would be in, in the US, we probably don't have a recession as, as defined, but there's certainly going to be a slowdown. So we've been thinking about valuations and, and where we want to allocate capital. And, you know, one of the changes we've, we've made in our portfolios is to move some of our S&P 500 allocation into the S&P 500 equal weight. So the traditional S&P 500 is a market cap-based index. So you end up owning more of the larger companies because they've got bigger capitalization, whereas the equal weight owns an equal share of all of them. And so by owning the equal weight, we're, we're effectively underweighting some of the very large cap technology companies which and communication services companies, which have rallied very hard. And, you know, it's interesting if you look at the, I think it was the 20-year anniversary of the equal weighted index on the S&P at the end of last year, it had actually outperformed the market cap-based S&P by about 1.5%. So I think the numbers, if I stand to be corrected, but I think it was 11.5% annualized return on the S&P 500 equal weight over that 20-year period versus a 10% return on the market cap weight. But in recent years, the market cap index has significantly outperformed, you know, driven by this, these large technology companies. And our view would be that you know, perhaps that corrects itself over, over the coming months and years. And inherently, by owning a lot of those equal-weighted companies, more of the smaller companies in the equal-weighted index, you own companies that often trade at more attractive multiples. So that's one of the changes in our US allocation. And the second, which we haven't yet initiated, is looking at the mid-cap um, names within the, S, you know, the US stock market. So, you know, you've got the S&P 400, for example. And again, mid-cap stocks over a 28-year period, if, I stand, uh, if I'm correct on the, my exact numbers, outperformed the large-cap stocks by 2%. And so as we move into a, a different world where you've had this very strong bifurcation between your big, strong tech communication services winners and the rest, which have you know often performed poorly or flat, we think it might be an opportunity to to rejig our allocation within within the U.S. Um, as pertains to other regions, we we retain a slight overweight to China, as I touched on. Um, within Europe, we've positioned a little bit more defensively, moving some of our more cyclical sectors like European autos into European healthcare, which is a more defensive sector. And then another more recent uh, trade that we've done in portfolios. Is if you if you followed clean energy stocks, you know, which is a broader theme we like, taking a five, ten, twenty year view on asset allocation, you know, wind and solar companies sitting within clean energy ETF are appealing to us long term, but around the margin you can also tweak your your weighting. And so given the sell off we've seen in, in a lot of these names, driven by, you know, partly lithium iron prices rising massively um, and also higher interest rates. We've seen a, a meaningful drop in the clean energy stocks and, and therefore the ETFs. And so we've started to increase our allocation to those as well. So those would be, you know, the sort of more recent changes we've done in portfolios. But it's a very difficult time. You know, we, we've got uncertainty on the horizon re relating to the economy, uncertainty relating to how high interest rates go or for how long they stay elevated and what the knock-on effects will be. So, you know, it's it's... 
not easy given we've had a good move up from Q4 last year already. Well, you talked earlier about the influence of geopolitical attitudes, say, of the US versus China, and there might be a bit of a thawing there. There's still the Ukraine war. We've got a number of elections coming up. In the US, there's an election. There, in 2024. In the UK, there's an election. In South Africa, there's an election. What is your um, outlook on how those would affect markets' interest rates? I think, you know, forming a strong view on how policy will change post-election is very difficult in allocating capital. Firstly, you don't know who's going to win the election. That's problem number one. And then when whoever wins the election, knowing for sure which policies get passed, because often there's a requirement for coalition government, and, and it's, it's very difficult to pass new legislation which might impact um, stock markets. But you, there are certain things you can look to, you know, like in general, if you have a, you know, Republican versus Democrat, uh, you know, House or Senate, what is the impact on markets? You know, the this, you know, the Senate changes every six years, the House changes every two. We've had big news overnight um, about McCarthy. So there's there's lots that can change very quickly. But normally, what we would do is think more about given the change, is there now an opportunity post event? And so trying to read the likelihood of policy post-event, but predicting election outcomes is very, very difficult. And we wouldn't make broad-based allocations based on sometimes guesswork on, on how the election pans out. But it's it's a catalyst for activity. So we trade around, geo, you know, our drivers of investing are, you know, valuations and where we are in cycle, but then monetary policy, fiscal policy, and monetary, well, certainly fiscal policies linked closely to governments monetary policy is supposed to be independent of the government, but monetary policy and fiscal policy are very important. And then geopolitical sentiment, you know, the Trump period <laughs> in terms of his anti-China rhetoric presented opportunity to some degree in, in, in allocations to China, which, which then rallied. We're now still in a period of uncertainty as to how geopolitics unfolds with China. So, you know, that's just one example, you know, whether we're, we're looking also at Brazil and how, you know, policy change there, you know, following the change of leadership could impact longer term the stock market and, and Brazil's relationship with China and the new BRICS plus setup. So, you know, we, we're, we're aware of all of these things, but you've got to think very big picture geopolitically and macroeconomically as to how it might change. And sometimes people just guess and we don't like to guess. We'd rather have some level of certainty and then balance risks carefully. That makes sense. Thank you so much, Mark Perchel. Thanks for speaking to us. No problem. Thanks, Linda.